Okay, this morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be looking at this longer passage of verses 26 through 40 as we go ahead and wrap up chapter 14. Uh, I've titled this portion, as many commentators do, Order in the Church. Uh, that's the theme. That's the subject that Paul's dealing with. Uh, he's dealing with supernatural sign gifts like tongues and prophesying revelations from the Lord, as we've been talking. But if we're going to look at an overarching principle that he's dealing with, it's order in the local church. And how, what does that look like, at least for the Korean church, and some of the principles he gives. So I kind of think of this passage, and I think of a courtroom scene where a judge has to, like, you know, hit the gavel down and say, order in the court. You know, that's kind of what Paul was doing, is kind of hitting the gavel down and saying, order in the church. Calm down, everybody, you know. Uh, uh, usually in a, in a courtroom, if you've ever seen a dramatized court setting or something like that, you know, you can get people, like a bunch of people trying to talk at once, and the whole court court erupt into noise and the judge has to hit that gavel to kind of say no quiet down that's not how we conduct ourselves that's what he's basically doing Paul again is doing something similar here in the text with the Corinthians of like this is not how we do it we calm down we do this in peace we do this decently we do this in order and we go one at a time and just things like that that's what's being discussed here in this text order in the church Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. One more time. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A little nugget of wisdom there captured by Solomon, Proverbs 16.32 that verse is a verse about self-control. Self-control for the person rightly related to God. And Scripture puts a high premium on self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's absolutely necessary for the healthy function of any individual and the church. There are people who try to get by on some kind of fleshly-powered self-control trying to repress urges and things like that of their own strength. And what you usually find is that doesn't last very long. Usually, anger will burst through. Impatience will override you if it's done in the flesh. The Christian, however, has the spirit of the living God within them, which can produce the fruit of self-control, and it can be a lasting self-control because we're resting and what God is doing, his goodness, his presence, things like that, we're able to realize he's working things out. We can have self-control. I want to read to you something, a quote from Max Lucado from the book, Let, Journey, Let the Journey Begin, where when in talking on self-control, uh, he kind of captures the Christian's attitude toward it in saying, I choose self-control. I am a spiritual being. After this body is dead, my spirit will soar. I refuse to let what will rot rule the eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by my God. 
and I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. Again, what a wonderful way to capture the sentiment of the Christian and living out the fruit of the Spirit. And again, this all comes back to what we're talking about in our text with the Corinthians. We're seeing firsthand in this epistle a group of people who knew the Lord as their Savior, who had the Spirit of the living God indwelling them, but were not exercising self-control. And therefore, their church was way out of order. Their worship times, like what you and I are having this morning, theirs were chaotic, confusing, not edifying. They were doing way more harm than good. And we'll continue to explore that in these verses. But the theme, one of the themes of this passage is the need for self-control in the church, that we need the Spirit to, to basically help us to realize this is not about me. I'm not coming together with the church to have my way, to do what I want to do with the me, me, me attitude that was just plaguing the Corinthians in so many ways. We've seen throughout this book they were a divided church. Divided. They were divided into factions. They had all kinds of uh, problems, again, that we've described. And now you see how it looked in their church service. It was still division, out of order, indecent in their behavior toward one another. And again, Paul is correcting that here. And so we're going to divide this section up into two chunks. Verses 26 through 35, simply under the heading, Edify in Orderliness. And verses 36 through 40, the last few verses, simply as, Accept God's Ways. Just a couple of takeaways that we'll make from this passage as we go through it. So let's look at a few passages together. We'll start with verse 26. Again, Paul says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If you read that verse just the right way, there's almost a little bit of a poetical rhyme to it, you know, with the interpretation, edification. You know, <laughs> Sounds like one of the old schoolhouse rock songs a little bit, if you ever saw those, you know, uh, anyway. Anybody? I mean, are we awake this morning? I don't know. I'm thinking I'm up here boring you to tears. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, uh, maybe the sound's distracting. I don't know. But uh, anyway, verse 26, Paul sets the stage of what's going on now. He says, basically, when you guys come together, he's like, how is it this way? He's questioning them again. He's questioning them on this. When they come together, he says, each of you has something. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. The church is meant to be a place where the body of Christ can come together and everyone can exercise the gifts that God has given them to, to, to the God's glory and to the building up of the saints, the encouragement of the saints. Singing and psalms, you know, hearing truth and teaching and such things, that's all good. But he's capturing here an attitude that they have. When they come together with that, Everybody's come prepped with, well, this is what I'm doing today. This, they have a, when he says each of you has something, he's saying you guys all come demanding your moment in the spotlight. It seems to be what he's addressing here. Everybody wants to be in the center stage, in the spotlight. 
And so as we go through these passages, the point we're making for us to take away is to choose edification over exhibition. To choose edification over exhibition. Remember, the word edify simply means to build up. And I adopt that from Warren Wiersbe, who on this passage says that the key word for the Corinthians was not edification, but exhibition. What does exhibition mean? It means to put on a show. That's what we've been reading about in chapters 12 through 14. When they came together, they really valued certain spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues, because it really stood out. It really captured people's attention. It really put the individual on exhibition. And that's what the Corinthians apparently were craving when they came together. They wanted to be in the spotlight. They kind of wanted to show off what they could do once again. And as we can just, even as we talk about it, we can understand that's not healthy. That's pride. That's self-centeredness. They weren't coming together with the interest of others in mind. They were not coming with the attitude, how can I encourage people this morning? How can I encourage people today? Lord, Give me something to say. Give me something to sing that will build up my brethren. That's the right attitude when we come together as a church. What am I coming to give? And and I'll say this. When the attitude is others-centeredness, and you do have a group come together, a very diverse group, with different talents and abilities and things, and you you all have that attitude, you will experience the functioning of a healthy church where everyone does go away encouraged when it's done with that attitude. So there's an attitude behind this, again, of others-centeredness, choosing to build up someone else rather than to show myself off. And I think that's always a a word of warning we need to hear no matter who we are or what position we have in a local church or whatever our gifts are, is it's not about me. Again, that just echoes through 1 Corinthians. Paul's basically saying it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ living for him, winning people to him. You know, I recently finished remodeling the basement in our home, and that's been a long process, and have had some of you in the house and see the progress, and it's been an ordeal that's been, you know, a good 18 months, but we've kind of crossed the finish line on it, and we're starting to use it a little bit and, and kind of move it into it. But, you know, when, when we started that project, there was kind of a step one. We needed to have plans. And really, any kind of a major project, there has to be some kind of a plan. And usually, if you're going to build something, build a house, build a building, do a major addition or remodeling project, you have to give to an inspector plans, a floor plan or something. Here's what we're doing. Here's the plans. And then when you have the plans in place, you begin to build. And it can be a fun process to what's on paper to make it a reality, to begin to build. And, and, And I'll say, hey, the basement turned out like the plans show. So that's good, right? <laughs> uh, we didn't have any real major obstacles. But that, that makes me think of the word edification. Again, edification is to build. And in this context, God is giving us his plans. How do we build in the church? He's given us a floor plan. This is what the church looks like. This is how we can operate with a few principles, putting our focus on others, 
doing things orderly, giving people an opportunity to exercise their gifts for the Lord. You follow the plans, and guess what you build? You build something that God wants. You can make it look like the plans. And that's, again, what he's explaining here as the church seeks to exercise their gifts here. As we read on, verse 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now again, a lot of these passages are fairly simple to get the main point of what Paul's talking about. We've said it before, we've said it many times, we're, we're dealing with a context of Scripture with a church in the first century that was in a period that we generally refer to as a transition period. God was still showing the world that he was moving away from Israel as a national entity that he was using as his elect and chosen people to a whole new paradigm the body of Christ, the church of the living God, made up Jew, Gentile, no matter who you are, where you come from, you trust in Jesus Christ, you're part of this body of believers. And so that was a transition of revelation of like, hey, we're doing something different now. And because of the, some of the things going on, these gifts were in place, again, to give credibility to apostles, to show that God was blessing these new Gentile churches because these folks could do some of the same things as some of the Jewish folks could do previously. God was showing he was blessing the Gentiles now with the gospel of the grace of God. But it was a passing transition, and Paul's explained that back in chapter 13. Tongues and prophecies, they were going to cease. But faith, hope, and love, remember, were going to abide, that that's what the Christian life needs to be about, the fruit of the Spirit in faith, hope, and love. Again, so we continue to build on that understanding. These gifts were passing, but in this time they were operational, and so he's giving them parameters. If you're going to use this gift this way, then have some order to it so people can be edified through it and not just waste your breath and waste your time. So he says here, he just gives some brief guidelines if there's going to be tongues, and again, by tongues we mean speak in a foreign language, a real language, a real earthly language. If you're going to speak in tongues, two or at most three in your service. He gives that guideline here. Now, as he gives these guidelines, and he, you'll see him say something similar to the gift of prophecy, is it sounds like in their services, again, chaos would ensue, that they would come together as a church, and one person would start talking, and probably before they were finished, one other, somebody else would stand up and start talking. And before long, a whole group of people were talking over each other, right? And you'd think, well, and what could you possibly take away if that was going on? So he says, no, two or three. And there's an idea of each in turn, one at a time, right? Just orderly, orderly, so we can get something out of it. And then he puts another condition on tongues in their church at that time. Someone needs to interpret the tongues. Again, we're talking about foreign languages. If no one can understand what you're saying, it doesn't matter how slow you say it. If no one else is talking, how else quiet it is in the building, nobody's going to understand it. So take your turns, and there needs to be an interpreter present so you can take away truth that can transform your life. That's what he's saying there, right? And that's just common sense to us, right? But again... 
Sometimes we all get, can get caught up in pride and, you know, common sense stuff goes out the window and, and the idea of what the fruit of the Spirit is can go out the window. No, uh, he calls us back always to the fruit of the Spirit, other-centeredness, and again, the idea of self-control here. And that's actually the point we're making in this, this passage as we continue on down a few more verses is we need to choose self-control over selfishness. We've already alluded to that point, but just to make it crystal clear, we are to choose self-control over selfishness. Again, we're dealing with a context where some of these things aren't applying specifically today with tongues and people receiving a revelation right in the middle of a church service and they're supposed to stand up and say it as we've explained. Those gifts of the Spirit, they've passed because their purpose has passed. Some things remain. But we can take away the principles that we can still do things orderly, as we'll see. Now, I don't mean necessarily to pick on churches, but what, something that strikes me, I'll just make a passing comment, is uh, I've told my story, and I know we've all had stories of uh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ who I've, I attended some services where I saw these things, or at least the, the practice of these things, and um, went away without anything really being added to me and leaving with no truth that really transformed my life, no greater knowledge of who Jesus Christ is to me personally. And I just find it interesting that in many groups that would still try to practice these gifts that we're reading about is I'm not even sure that we're even following this passage because in the churches I've seen, there was always more than one person up at one time, strangely enough. And so it just kind of strikes me that whatever one's view on these gifts are, at least follow the instructions, which I've, I've, I've certainly seen groups that did not. And again, I just find that interesting. It makes me, you know, and, and anyway, I'll just go on with that. But he moves right on into prophecy. But I suppose I'll just make one quick comment on verse 28 before we go. He gives the conditions for tongues, two or three max, one at a time, only if there's an interpreter. And he says, if there's not an interpreter, guess what? Keep silent. Just be still. Just don't, you don't have to say something. You don't have to exhibit your super spirituality to everybody else. You can just, guess what? God sees you, whether you're standing up talking or not. You don't have to stand up to get his attention. You know, he, 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 great that he's blessed you with this ability, but use it in a way that honors him. There's no need to stand up. And again, it just, there's a principle there that just speaks to ministry is not about bringing attention to yourself. Ministry is about just doing what God's put on your heart, but doing it in an orderly way, a decent way. So he tells that person, hey, just, just keep silent and let him speak to himself and to God. Hey, God hears your prayers. God hears your heart. It's okay. You don't have to be up front. You don't have to be up front. There's no added blessings up front or wherever, whatever you want to say. There's no added blessing really up there. So I just appreciate that little principle he puts in there as well. And then he goes right into prophecy. Hey, he said in this portion of Scripture, 12 through 14, he's made the case that if you're asking him, prophecy is a little more important than tongues because prophecy is communicating truth in an understandable way where tongues may not be. And so prophecy is probably going to do more good in most situations. And so he says, he said earlier, desire the gifts in chapter 14, verse 1, but especially 
that you may prophesy. He puts a higher value on it, which the Corinthians did not. They put the highest value on tongues we, we see here. But he still gives some principles to guide them. Verse 29 shows that it is best for only two or three prophets to speak and other prophets uh, could judge. Against verse 29 it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Again, pretty simple, but he puts a couple of guidelines out there for the Corinthians. You've got prophets in the church, people who can get revelation from God and speak it, and it's edifying, and it builds up, and he's made that case, but he says, even so, limitations are okay. <laughs> you don't need everybody talking at once. It doesn't do any good. We're not competing here. Let two or three speak, and he's getting into the idea of taking turns. And he said, well, what about the others? He says, let the others judge or discern. And you kind of have an interesting situation here begin because you're at a time in this transition, basically moving from Israel to the church and things still unfolding and new revelation being given and people doing miraculous things, again, for the reasons we've already mentioned. They, in times, would receive direct messages from the Lord. They would receive revelations. Okay? And... They were to communicate those, obviously, and so he gives these guidelines. But there was also some time, something that went on in that time. And again, it's kind of, we don't necessarily get to experience it firsthand. So some of these things we can only really visualize. How would it have looked? You know, really can only kind of visualize to a degree of how this was looking back then. But he says the other prophets can still be active with their gift in a quiet way in just listening. And this was a safeguard in a time before Scripture was complete. This was a safeguard that revelation was established by more than just one speaker person. This is a safeguard against the idea of false prophets, which was very real then. And you could say these false prophets can be here today. Anybody speaking a message that's wrong could be considered, hey, that's, that's a false prophet. You're saying something that's not true. And so this was put in because somebody could say, I've received a revelation from the Spirit, do this. And, and, and the people that didn't have the gift of prophecy would, would be like, okay. But if there's other prophets present that the Spirit is speaking through, they could say, amen. Or maybe in some cases, and you can read in the New Testament, there's examples of the false prophets being kind of found out. And, and Paul names a few. And John deals with the issue in the New Testament. It may, there may have been real times in church where somebody stood up and said something and somebody else stood up and did interrupt and say, what you're saying is not from God. Talk about some drama in the church, right? If that happened, yeah. But it probably did because of some of the things we read. If somebody actually had to publicly stand up and say, that's not right. And we could say, well, do we have a takeaway from that? Because we don't believe people are getting direct messages from the Lord that are authoritative and that speak to the whole church of what we should be doing. We believe God has preserved his special revelation in his inspired written word. And this is the authority for the church today. And so now his speakers of this age, right, are to bring truth from the word already revealed. We're not getting direct messages of revelation to speak in an authority like that. He's not doing that anymore. The revelatory gifts are gone because the word of God is established. But do we not have a responsibility still within the church to discern truth? And we do, and that's why God does give a leadership model for the local church. 
of biblical eldership, of men that are to shepherd the local body. And the men who Paul in Acts 20 warns about, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Like, watch out for false teachers, false prophets, if you will, people who speak something that's not true. Watch out for that. And there's a leadership model to follow to, to safeguard against somebody just standing up and saying something that's way off base. And there is a responsibility on a body of believers to know the scripture for themselves and to see if when somebody says something, to see if, if that is true based on the word of God. And that is a principle that, you know, well, at, at Berean Bible Institute, we use the word Berean. And you know a lot of our grace groups use the word Berean. That comes from Acts chapter 17 in the uh, city of Berea that Paul visited. And something was unique about their synagogue of Jewish folks. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so that Paul and his companions taught. They listened and they tested it against scripture. And that's ultimately the responsibility of any believer in Christ. Because, you know, our relationship to God is one-on-one. -on -one. There's no mediators. It's you and Jesus Christ is the one mediator. You have a relationship with God, your Father. And he's speaking to you through his word personally and directly. And so you need to know the word. And while you have shepherds, you have elders, you have teachers, you're to rely primarily on your own reading and study of God's word for your own heart. Ultimately, it's for you to, to discern that. And so we do have the principle of discernment there with truth being told. As we go on in our passage, in verse 30, he says, But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, and I'm going to read verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So as he continues on with the idea of the prophecy being exercised in their context then, he even, he, he even talks about submission. I've mentioned self-control as a theme in this passage, but another, another theme here is actually submission. Hey, and we're going to get to the controversial verses about women in the church in a minute, right? That's where everybody's waiting, probably. Yeah, I'm going to be ducking behind the pulpit in a minute here. The tomatoes come, right? Because we get into submission and, and, and male and female roles and God's intention from creation on, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But submission is not just for women and, and their husbands. To their husbands, everyone submits. Everyone yields. We all yield to Jesus Christ, our head. And there's yielding in the church. One of the ways this kind of comes up in our, in our times, even like in a time like this, when we're having a, a message from the word. We do have sometimes like amens and, and you know, preach it, that's right. Uh, which I give you permission to say that this morning. <laughs> Don't let me stop you. No, but, uh, but we, we all here, when somebody's up here, we actually are exercising a submission. We're saying, hey, I'm going to let this person talk and say what's on their heart and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to discern from the word, and I'm going to let the Spirit deal with my heart. Right? We are submitting in that moment. That's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're listening, we're receiving. And we take turns here, and we all get to practice it. And it's like that in everything. We, we, there's a submission. 
You know, if you sit quietly in your Sunday school class this morning, listen to your teacher share what's on their heart, you're submitting to a point. You're recognizing that there's like, you know, kind of a structure of authority of, you know, eldership and leadership and things. And it's not that anyone's better or anything like that. It's just God has order. God has order. And we submit to that all the time, don't we? Again, that's what, what they were missing. In their church, with the prophets, again, people seem to have been speaking over each other. He says, you can all do it one by one, and everybody learns and may be encouraged. And in verse 30, I skipped over it again, but he says, if something is revealed in the moment, maybe that microphone noise, maybe that's kind of some kind of revelation coming in here. I tune in a different frequency, maybe I can hear what it's saying. No. <clears throat> He says, if it's something is revealed to another prophet sitting by who's not talking, the first guy, he can submit. He can yield some time and say, you know what? This guy's, let's hear what this guy has to say. And he can actually, guess what? Step out of the spotlight a moment, right? And he can yield his time and say, you go ahead and share now. See, what's that attitude? What's that leadership model? That is a model of servanthood, of submission, of self-control. It doesn't have to be me. It's not me, me, me. And if there's somebody else here that can bless you, come on up. And I think, and I'll just say it, I think you see that principle in how we conduct ourselves in this church. Because we know there's, there's men of God in this church, and they all have something to say that we believe God's laid on their heart from the word of God. And we like to say, come on up, and you speak now. And let's hear what, what God's doing in your heart, in your life. And we enjoy that plurality of ministry, that, that diversity of the body and it's kind of why, part of why we do what we do. Verse 32, other interesting verse. He says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You know what he's saying here? He's saying just because you have the spirit of God and you have a spiritual gift, you're not out of control. The spirit of God and this gift did not just take these people over. They didn't just fall into a trance and they couldn't help themselves. That's not how it worked. That's what he's saying. The spirit of the prophets, that spirit God's put in you to give you that gift and exercise that gift, he says, it's still ultimately under your exercise and control of it. In other words, use your spiritual gift with the fruit of the spirit. That's how you exercise it. They still were autonomous people. They didn't just go into a trance and lose control. That's not how it worked. But they were probably using that as excuse. You know, when the spirit moves, who am I to say, no, I'm just going to interrupt. And you can, you know, a lot of people do that today, right? We kind of blame God for our own shortcomings and the things we do. I mean, you know, it sounds like they were kind of using the excuse, well, God wanted me to interrupt you. <laughs> God wanted me to stand up and tell you my two cents about, about that issue. And uh, again, we could only imagine the confusion that would come out of that. But he says, no, 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 no. God still puts that within your domain. Exercise self-control. Exercise faith, hope, and love. Submission is at work there. You don't have to be the, the one up front. And that's all in play there. And so you come away with, no, it's subject to you. You know, and, and, and that speaks to, to people today that may be up front speaking of, hey, just because you may feel the Spirit's, you know, really doing something in your heart doesn't give you the excuse to preach an hour extra because it's, it's still under your control, right? You know, let's not blame God. <laughs> let's understand what that verse says. That, no, he still puts it in your control. The fruit of the Spirit still trump the gifts of the Spirit and how the local church works. Even if we're not talking about these supernatural sign gifts, even what gifts remain today, no, they're still within 
You exercise them in the fruit of the Spirit, and that's an interesting takeaway from that. So he said, I have an excuse for disorder. It can be orderly. And he goes to verse 33 and says, Look at your God. How has God always operated throughout time? God is, and the New King James reads, the author. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace. What God does is always in a spirit of peace. He says, uh, excuse me, I lost my space there. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, but God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. When God is at work, when God's really controlling you via the fruits of the Spirit, there will be peace amongst you. You won't be interrupting each other. You won't be falling over each other to get your word in edgewise. You will be respectful, self-control, submission, honoring each other. You will have come to give, not just to receive. Right? That's, again, a picture of a healthy church. God produces that through each believer. It's peace. If there's confusion and chaos, then you know God's not behind it. That's the principle. So don't blame God for our shortcomings, right? Because he says, here's the way. And we'll talk about accepting God's way in just a minute. But we have to still choose to accept his way. So you know what? It's better to do things his way than not the way I want to do it. We'll move on. Let's read the next couple of verses, 34, 35. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, admittedly, this, these verses are controversial for a lot of reasons. It's funny because even in some language studies, a lot of people have tried to say that these are spurious verses and don't belong in the New Testament. And yet they're in every manuscript we have. But people make that case. That's how controversial these verses are, okay? And the whole idea of what comes out in the New Testament, Paul's epistles specifically, about roles of men and women and how that connects with the church. Now, in this passage, there are some contextual issues we have to at least understand. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talked about women praying and prophesying. He said, make sure your head's covered. And I'll just let you in that there's a debate. Was that in their public church services or was that more private? And it depends on how you read chapter 11, because there's certainly a part of that text where he's talking about in their group settings, but people look at it differently. And I'm going to tell you, there's probably, there's even amongst Christians who accept the verses as, you know, they belong here, and we would. There's at least four major views that are prevailing in, you know, Christian thinking today of what exactly those verses are. So all I can do is give you my understanding of why these verses are to be rendered in this situation, in their context, and the biblical context. And I believe what Paul is primarily speaking to here, in a, in a church service of the Corinthian church where it was all disorder, it was all chaos, prophets interrupting each other, tongue speakers interrupting each other, that the women too were characterized by interrupting the people who were speaking, interrupting the leaders, you might say. And I believe in that role, if that was what was going on here, then that would be, in a sense, disorderly because it's not in tune with God's order of, of biblical headship, but he reveals from creation onward in the scriptures. So let me just give you a few thoughts on these verses here. Um, real quick, the, the ending phrase, as it is in all the churches of the saints at the end of verse 33, really belongs with verse 34 in the Greek text. It actually goes more with verse 34. 
4 that he's saying, he's about to talk about the women. He says, this is how it is in all the churches. This is just, these are principles that are in all the, the churches of that time. And he says, just like he told the tongue speaker who was interrupting, you know, be silent. Just like he told the prophet who may have been interrupting, be silent. He tells the women, be silent. Don't be interrupting those that are speaking in roles reserved for men. Don't interrupt that. That's not, that's not God's way. Okay, and we... Um, so I, I think we are looking at it. We're certainly looking at a context here, uh, and I think he's simply saying that the women here were not to be uh, in the role of the public main speaker. They were not to usurp teaching and speaking roles reserved for men, but instead remain in submission as called, as God had laid out in other places. And Paul even says the law teaches this, and that's probably just a general reference to what you see in the Old Testament from Genesis onward. You see God, he put men in the leadership roles for the spiritual and national life of Israel, prophets, priests, you know, kings. There's a, there's, there's a couple of exceptions, but when you look in the exceptions, you find their exceptions. But general rule of thumb is God wants the, the men to lead in these roles because he's designed them for that. And he's designed the women as the helpers, uh, which is not a detrimental term by any means in Scripture. But that's how God has ordained things, and this is part of the order of the church as well. This goes back to the principle of biblical headship. He dealt with it earlier. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Some of the women in the Corinthian church were not buying into God's roles for women and men, that had come out earlier in the whole headship and the covering issue, which was a cultural issue, but it was still a marker. It was a cultural marker of, are you really submitting the way God's called you to? The idea is, the principle is still submission. That's transcultural. And it would look different in our culture, but, but is it there? Is the principle there? And now it's in their public speaking. Are the women exercising that submission? Are we, are we exercising God's role of biblical headship? in these ways? Or are we interrupting and maybe trying to take over and take roles that are not, that are reserved for men? In 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 15, uh, through 15, Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There's obviously a lot there to unpack, but I go to that passage primarily just for the, again, it's, it's just the, the application of the biblical headship model that God has designed in his goodness and sovereignty. He says, this is what I want. And he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over the man but to be in silence. So see, that kind of qualifies our understanding of what he's saying in Corinthians. It's, it's not that, a, I don't believe, it's not that a woman can't come up here and share what God's done and speak that way or help lead singing. Obviously, if we really thought that that's what it was saying, we would be doing things different. But, it, but we think he's basically repeating the same idea that was in all the churches, which Timothy hears more clearly. It's a little bit more defined, we might say, that it's about don't usurp the roles that God says. No, men are elders. Men are the pastors. That's what God has said. And so that's, he's asking them, honor that. Do that decently in an order. Don't interrupt that. Okay, honor that. 
And we all have ministry. And women have, a, have ministry and plenty of ministry. And there's all kinds of verses that talk about that, like in Titus, of teaching women. And we, we, you can, you know, obviously you can teach children, but when it gets into a woman teaching men, as long, it's, it's more of a question of like, is this an authoritative teaching role? Are we, are we putting somebody in the role of that elder, pastor, teacher position that God says, no, that's, that's for men in, in the New Testament scriptures, and it's a principle that's all through scripture, is what Paul's making the case here. So that, I believe, is what he's calling back into order. Again, the women here were already characterized by abandoning headship already in chapter 11. He's saying it's coming out in the church too and how you're treating these teachers and so forth. And it's not good. So he says, bring, bring yourself into order, which is what he's saying to everybody. No, every, when everybody is in order before the Lord personally, then the church is in order. Okay? Well, I'm running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it up a little earlier. I could just say the Spirit's moving me and keep going. <laughs> but now you have, you have a scripture to fight back on that. So I've given you the secret. What do you say to a preacher that says that, right? But we're running out of time. But I'll close with this example of self-control. And it's by the uh, Henry Ward Beecher, a story he tells about his dad. He says, once a man came to our house red with wrath. He was boiling over with rage. He had, or supposed he had, a grievance to complain of. My father listened to him with great attention and perfect quietness until he had got it all out. And then he said to him in a soft and low tone, well, I suppose you only want what is just and right. The man said yes, but went on to state the case over again. Very gently, father said to him, if you have been misinformed, I presume that you would be perfectly willing to know what the truth is. And he, of course, said he would. And then father, very quietly and gently, a.k.a. self-control, made a statement on the other side. And when he was through, the other man got up and said, forgive me, forgive me. Father had beaten him by his quiet and gentle way. And he goes on and he says, I saw it and it gave me an insight into the power of self-control. It was a striking illustration of the passage, he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh the city. That was the proverb we started with, remember? So what Paul was calling them is the principles of self-control, Submission, it's not about me. Instead, I come together, together with you in spirit to give. It's about other-centeredness. It's about glorifying God. And that's always the truth for us in any situation, not just the church, but especially in the church. What attitude do we come in with is really the question. And that's going to answer of, are we going to have order in the church, right? Or something else. So next time we'll finish out this chapter. And we'll leave it for that time. So with that, let's pray. Father, thanks for your words from Scripture. Sometimes, Lord, they challenge us in unique ways and, and uh, are always worthy to be meditated upon more and studied out more. But, Lord, use this passage to continue to work in our hearts this morning through your Spirit that we are continue to be 
a group that has order and does all things decently and in order because your spirit, we're allowing your spirit to truly govern us with the fruit of the spirit and are characterized by self-control and gentleness and even submission in the right context, Father. So, Lord, we ask that and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.